Now, they, we are the other side of the election, you may have noticed, uh, but we, in, in this teaching series, in a moment, we're going to go into a break. Okay, doing it a little bit different. So I've got a couple of minutes now, and you'll understand why I'm doing a few minutes now, because then we're going to go into the normal interval, and for some of you, you might go, I want to run, and I want to get out of here, and I just want to give you opportunity to do that. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the economy and welfare. We've done uh, right-wing stuff, we've done left-wing stuff, and now we're going on to some less emotive subjects. So we're going to help Michael Gove out with justice. We're going to look at issues of immigration and marriage and family life. Absolutely thrilled to know that Chris Candia from Home for Good, as well as London School of Theology, is actually going to be with us in a few weeks' time. Uh, Chris is just an amazing guy, amazing communicator. Me and Belinda, over the couple of times that we're going to be speaking in this Citizen Series, we're going to choose issues of life and death. Life in the womb followed by assisted dying. We've got to face this stuff. Caroline, undoubtedly, in the next five years, will have to understand how she sits on some of these massive issues. So that's what we're going to look at. Two massive issues. Should Christians be engaging in these things? A few weeks back, I spoke on welfare. I had quite an email response and tweet response and things like that. One email I opened up said, this church should not be doing this series at all. The very next email I opened up was, this is the exact series that this church should be doing. I personally feel it is important. Massive issues. Should we be engaging in them or not? See, it's not about how we voted a couple of days ago. It's how we now live. Live as citizens of heaven. Major life issues. Some of you right now will be having to deal with some very ill partners or ill relatives. And you're seeing the pain and you're seeing the anxiety that they're facing every day. And you're making difficult decisions and choices about end of life care. How do you make them? How do you care and give dignity of the person and keep that in line with God's plan? What is preserving life? What is prolonging life? When do we withdraw medical intervention? When do we introduce medical intervention in order to end life? Others at this time are making difficult decisions about bringing new life into this world. Some of you in the next day or two will be having unprotected sex. Some of you, dependent upon your circumstances, the nature of your relationship, the stage of life that you are in, the economic factors and viability, you will either be living in hope of that, or you'll be living in fear of that. If it's fear, and getting pregnant is one of the fears, and it is not in your plan, what do you do about that? Do you make the decision to go for the morning after pill? If you go for the morning after pill, do you choose the pill that stops the egg being released and getting fertilised, which is kind of a form of contraception? Or do you take the morning after pill, which even happens, stops the fertilised embryo from rooting into the uterus of of, of the woman? If it's stopping a fertilized egg from implanting, is that kind of terminating life? And if the pill is not an option, should you go ahead with an unplanned pregnancy? Those are the fears. If there's hope, then how do you prepare yourself to be a parent? A huge responsibility. If you're hopeful but then disappointed, how do you handle the fact that you're not pregnant? Should you consider IVF? And if IVF 
how many eggs should be fertilized, how many eggs should be planted back into the womb, and what happens to those unused fertilized embryos? Am I destroying life or potential life by freezing or destroying non-viable embryos? And what makes a non-viable embryo? These are huge uh, ethical uh, dilemmas that people are facing. Yesterday is the mirror. Massive headline, I'll give birth to my dead daughter's baby, grieving mother, 59, in legal battle to use her uh, a daughter who died of cancer, wants to use her victim's frozen eggs to have, in effect, her own grandchildren. Now, we might look at that story and we can sit in judgment and go, well, that is awful, or we can sit in compassion to say she's desperately trying to hold on to something of her daughter. Incredibly complex. Incredibly emotional. I'm ill-qualified to talk on any of this medically. But it's important from the outset that when looking at issues of life, especially life in the womb, is what we're talking about today. We are talking about this with tears of... Well, we're talking about it with tears, not with tears, not with judgment. We're coming with compassion. For many people here will be carrying the secret shame... And the pain of ending a pregnancy. In the UK today, one in three women will, will terminate a pregnancy. Some people will be here, we know. So this is a place of recovery, a place of restoration. We've got a video story, one of the King's Church stories later on is talking about that very thing. For some, you will have the heartache of not being able to have children and your deepest desire to have a child. For many, you'll still be carrying the grief of losing a child, either through pregnancy or in early childhood. Others have never really thought it through. Because it's easy to take a tablet and make an appointment. After all, society says, you know, it's my choice, it's your choice. And it's increasingly, it's not just your choice, but it is also your responsibility to make the right decision. Today, Though for some of you, it's the first time you've even explored or considered some of these things from a different perspective. And like with my talk on welfare a few weeks ago, some people may misunderstand, some people may get angry, some people may disagree completely. What I'm trying to attempt to do is be balanced in this, being a biblical perspective, because I want to use the Bible as the benchmark that sets our beliefs. Now, if this is not the right time for you to deal with this right now, I understand. And I want to give you the opportunity, we're going to have an interval, and the reason we want to have an interval, because you know yourself, this is not the right time, you just can't deal with this, and I don't want to embarrass you, and I don't want to put you into an awkward, difficult, impossible situation having to sit through this. So when we go to the break, just just go and help in the kids' work, or go and grab a coffee, or just go, you can always catch up online afterwards. We We want to be caring. This is an environment that is filled with care and compassion. However, I encourage you to please come back in a few minutes as we discuss the issue of life and life in the womb. Thank you. Let's take a couple of minutes break. I don't know whether you have noticed, but language changes. It evolves. Wicked used to mean bad. Literally, as in Wayne Rooney was literally on fire, literally doesn't mean that anymore. Cute, 
originally meant perceptive and shrewd. It now means sweet. Whereas sweet means cool. And cool has nothing to do with temperature. Language changes, it evolves. Sometimes evolves in order to bring about social change. So in a few weeks' time, we'll be looking at euthanasia, assisted homicide, which became assisted suicide, which became assisted dying, which has now become easeful death, which is turning to accessing death with dignity. Language changes in order to bring around a social change. Ending an unwanted or an unwelcome pregnancy started with compassion. Let's take it from the back streets. Let's care for the well-being of the mother. Let's provide a legal way of protecting her when the pregnancy and complications come that doesn't jeopardize her health or the health of the child. Language then evolved. Rather than from compassion, it moved to more of a stronger feminist agenda that is the woman's right to choose. Many politicians would still use the rhetoric of the right to choose. But I think it's now actually shifted again. It isn't so much about compassion and it isn't so much about uh, the rights, but it's now moving towards it is your social responsibility. What do you mean? You have a disabled child. What kind of person are you for choosing to bring a disabled baby into the world? Do you have the means to bring up this child? If you don't, then who's going to pay for it? Only bring this, only bring this child into the world if you want the child. And then maybe more tragically is how could I have this child and give it away for adoption knowing that it'll grow up, knowing that I rejected it, how will that make me feel? In the UK, sex is predominantly seen as a recreational, not a procreational activity. The average for first-time sex in teenage girls is 15, 16 years of age. The average age for having a baby now in the UK is 30. 15 years, that requires a very liberal abortion policy. In 2013, the latest figures available, 185,000 pregnancies, approximately a quarter of people who got pregnant ended in termination. It's easier, sometimes more convenient, more acceptable, more responsible for choosing to end a pregnancy than giving birth. What I'm going to try and do before Blinda comes to speak is to lay a biblical foundation. It's a big overview of why life matters. So it's really coming from a heart of compassion and care. What's our response as Christians? I'm a friend of two church leaders who both lead churches and they have two very different responses. One church leader organizes his congregation to stand outside a clinic in Brighton waving the placards, uh, talking about the evils of what is taking place inside. The other church leader has mobilized his congregation to provide an alternatives program, just presenting to anyone who finds themselves in a situation where maybe they have an unwanted pregnancy to say, please look at the alternatives. 
Please look at your options. Two people called by God in church leadership responding in two very different ways. How do we respond? My personal opinion as a leader of this church, and it's in the culture of who we are, is that we're a church for everyone. It's in our blood, it's who we are, and we will offer and continue to offer love and support. We will look to remove the secret shame, and we'll let people see the grace, and we'll let people encounter the forgiveness of God. We want grace encounters. Why? Because no sin, including abortion, is beyond God's grace. There is a permanent solution, full forgiveness in Jesus. I believe that. Now, some might say, Graham, you're saying that I should in some ways feel guilty about the decisions that I've done. It, after all, was my responsibility, my decision, my right to do that. Just anecdotally, and the people that Blinda particularly spends time with who talk to her on these issues, guilt is such a massive factor. And shame. And regret. So I'd love us to be in a position where we're not only talking forgiveness, but we're also offering tangible, real alternatives to people. A pro-life group in America uses as their kind of like mission and goal is to say this, let's not look to make abortion illegal, but let's look to make it unthinkable. So we need to change the language in order to bring about social change. And in order to make abortion an unthinkable option, we honestly need to be looking to see what viable alternatives we can present and we as a church community can be offering to people who are in this congregation and who are not currently a part of us. But in order for us to be able to suggest that, we need to establish the foundation as to why. Why is it important for us as a church community to be offering alternatives? Well, that comes down to a very important question. Is the unborn child worth it? Do we look to biology or do we look to the Bible for the answer to that question? See, language makes all the difference. So I was chatting to Rachel a few weeks ago and she said this. Up to the age of 24 weeks of her pregnancy, the midwife refused to call her unborn child a baby. As soon as she turned 24 weeks, the fetus became a baby. See, the embryo becomes a fetus, the fetus becomes a baby, but at what point does that embryo fetus baby become a person? At what point does a person become a person? Is it when the sperm meets the egg? Is it at 12 weeks when the baby is fully formed in the womb? Is it at 24 weeks? Is it at birth? Is it when they can live independently outside of the human body, somewhere anywhere up to the age of 24? Is it when they have the potential to live outside the human body, legally currently 24 weeks of pregnancy? Is it when fertilization takes place, what, within 24 hours of intercourse? Or is it when they have the ability or the capacity to reason or to think, something called trait X? Interesting dilemma. If a person loses the capacity to reason and think, does that make them a non-person? Disability. Dementia. Massive implications. Incredibly complicated, highly emotive, totally unqualified to speak on it. So it's important to move away from biology towards the Bible. Now some people say the Bible. 
Uh, come on, that was written pre-scientific technology. What can the Bible say? Come on, it was written in a time with limited knowledge to term, uh, you know, he uh, didn't understand the world and the universe like we understand the world and the universe now. However, it is God's plan for us. And it carries massive principles and worldview that make it as relevant today, even if there's no specific verse in the Bible that talks about IVF or embryo research. See, the Bible is God's big story. The story that started with creation, that went on to the, the fall of mankind and humanity. It went on to then the redemption, the recovery of mankind, and then points us towards the future, the destiny that we have ahead of us. Fallen from something and saved for something. See, our journey, every single one of us, actually goes back to the point of creation. In the first seven days of creation, according to the Bible, not according to Darwin, there's two major peaks. Firstly, it's the creation of humankind, humanity. Humanity is God's pinnacle of creation. You are sitting next to a person that is God's pinnacle of creation. And secondly, the second peak is that it was an introduction to the Sabbath. On the seventh day, God rested. And he wanted us to rest. Not just to have a day off work, but to rest in him. Ultimately, our supreme goal, or God's supreme goal for our lives, is to delight in him, in our recreation, that we can rest and be recovered and restored and enjoy his presence. That's the second peak. See, Genesis 1 is this massive biblical overview of our origins, of where we came about, the origins of the species, his work of creation, he, the designer, But then we see the intricacy of that design in Psalm 139. It says this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, honestly, if we lose sight of the concept and idea that we were designed by God, we strike at the very heart of the biblical understanding of what it actually means to be a human. This is not a Darwin debate. This is accepting a biblical foundation that God has made us. We are part of his plan, part of his purpose, part of his design. Genesis 1, 21, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we're made in God's image. We are God-like beings. Secondly, we're being called by God to rule over the rest of creation in his place, being his representative. So where we go, something of the character and the nature and the DNA of God is going out and about into the world. So the very first instructions to Adam and Eve was to go and multiply, populate the earth. What with? Not just with little babies, but with the very image of God. The very interesting, the very command that Jesus gave the new church was go out into the world, make disciples, populate the world with the very presence and image of God. It's God's plan, God's purpose. Being called by him to do, to represent, to, to be him in a sense in the world. So why is it important? It's so important for us to get this. Being made in his image is critical for us because it gives us our 
incredible worth and value and dignity comes from knowing that we're made in the image of God. Four things. Firstly, being in God's image, it means that we are in him. We're not individuals. We're not self-explanatory. We're not independent. We're not self-governing. We are a reflection of another made in the image of another. Tomorrow I'll be heading up with my family up to London. I'm sure we'll be going on to the London Underground. The map of a London Underground is nothing but a collection of coloured lines. But this is not the Underground. This is a map of the Underground. It's a map of another reality. The DNA that is within us, our human genome, is like a map that actually points to another reality, God. Therefore our value and our dignity doesn't come from ourselves and our own sense of self-worth and identity. It actually comes from God whose image we bear. If this is true, even if I have freedom to choose, genuine choice, degree of independence, my life is not mine to do with as I please. I am ultimately representing another and my ultimate meaning in life can only really be found when it's in relationship back with God. The society we live in today is incredibly liberal in its understanding of individualism. It's up to you. It's your choice. It's your rights, your decision. But biblical citizenship says the opposite. You don't live for yourself. You're actually here to represent another. It's the first point. Being in him matters because we are in him. Secondly, we're in community. Let us make man in our Image. Bearing God's image is done in community, first with God and then with one another. We are designed by God for relationship. My humanity, my personhood doesn't come from my ability to think or to the reason, I think, therefore I am, but it actually comes from a biblical fact that I am known and loved by God and I am known and loved by others. That is why rejection is so painful. Because we've been created to actually be in community with one another. But if I'm rejected, and maybe rejected by a birth parent, or maybe I'm classed as an accident or unplanned, that does not deny the fact that I am still a person. Why? Because my identity rests on the foundation of God called me into existence and continues to know me and continues to love me. I was no accident. I was not unwanted. My personhood is not based on uh, rationality, my ability to think or reason, but it's actually based on relationality. This is true. If it's true, it's big. Big implications. One of the biggest implications is that we cannot draw the line, the red line that we're not willing to cross to say that a fetus is not a baby until the age of 24 weeks because people define fetuses and not babies are defining my person as a, my ability to be independent outside of my mother or secondly, my cognitive ability to think. Where biblically, according to the Bible, my personhood, who I am, my very core of my identity is being in communion with God which is outworked also in communion with one another. It's a defining characteristic of who we are, what it is to be a person. It's not so much in my ability to think, but in this web of relationships that we're created into as persons in a community. So the disabled child with, with whatever illness that they're diagnosed with within the womb has no less ability to be in communion with God because they're made in his image and no less the ability to be born into a communion with others because they're no less a person and the parent's ability to care for, love and protect that 
that particular child is demonstrating something of the intrinsic value of that child as a person equally made in the image of God. We were designed by God to be made. We are in his image. Therefore, we are not only in him, but we're also in community as well. Third reason, God's image. Why is it important? Because we're in family. When Adam, Genesis chapter 5, 3 says, when Adam was 130 years old, he had a son who was just like him. His very spirit and his image, and he named him Seth. Now, I have a son. His name is Jake. Now, he may try to deny it, but there is no hiding that he's my son. There's characteristics, there's mannerisms, there's personality, there's football skills that he carries that are just... just like mine. See, our children carry our DNA, well, at least 50% of mine. He's my son. But it also works the other way around. People will come up to me and say, oh, you are Jake's dad, aren't you? And I might try to deny it, but there's no denying it that actually I am Jake's dad. He carries my DNA, but his identity, he knows me as his father. He's our heavenly dad. So in Luke chapter 3, where you've got this genealogy that traces back Jesus all the way back, who is his dad, who is his granddad, who is his great-granddad, who is great-great-granddad, and the many multiple generations, uh, works all the way back to the back end of verse 33, says this, the son of Kenan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. If we have children, something of not only my DNA is being transferred into the next generation, but also something of the character and the nature of God is being transferred, but at the same time it works the other way, that my identity works back all the way ultimately to know that God is my heavenly father. He's a heavenly dad. That gives me incredible security and knowledge and acceptance and value. Amazing to think that however many generations from that day to present day, not only God's image found in us being worked out from one generation to another, but my identity is actually found in him. Now through Jesus, we can come to know him again as our heavenly father. The fourth thing why it's so important to know about God's image is this, that we, have, we are invaluable as a result. If it's true that each human life carries something of the divine image, then it follows that each human life has incredible dignity and immeasurable worth. If it's not possible to calculate the value of human life in material terms, reductionism, or compare one life with another, each individual is a unique masterclass of God's creation and design. So we often place a person's value and worth based on their function and how well they function. Does that mean a person with Alzheimer's is no longer has any value? Or does that mean a fetus in a womb is less valuable than a baby outside of the womb? See, biblically, our dignity is not based on what we can do and how well we function, but in who we are, in what we are. We are carriers of God's image. We're a child of the Father. Some of you may have missed the news this week that there's been another royal baby. Baby Charlotte will be having round-the-clock care and attention. Why? Because she was born into the right family. But she's done nothing to deserve it. In fact, that was all to do with virtue of her dad. 
who had nothing to do with it because that was virtue of his heritage. People do not need to earn the right to be treated well because we inherit the right by virtue of being born children of the king. All equally valuable because of our creation status. The rich and the poor shake hands, Proverbs 22 says, God made them both. So being made in God's image is so important. Why? Because we are intrinsically linked with him. Not independent beings living for ourselves, but we are in him. We are in community, designed to be in relationship with him and relationship with others. We are in family. We're not only carriers of his image, the character and nature of God, but he's our heavenly father. And fourthly, we are invaluable as carriers of the divine nature. We have incredible dignity and state us not because of anything that we've done but because of who we are if this is true we should not be defining personhood by the ability to survive outside the womb at 24 weeks or when we're able to function with cognitive reason and ability we should be defining personhood biblically by our status as children of God who bear his image who know that he is our heavenly father and when does that happen not at birth we are carriers of DNA right at the foundations of life. The status is equally true for every embryo with a disability, every embryo when circumstances are right or convenient, every embryo that is produced within the process of IVF, because every embryo is being knitted together by God, a masterclass in design, even the unplanned or the unwelcomed ones. Please, we welcome Belinda. Thank you. So we're going to now look at um, how do we respond to this. And what Graham has said is massive, isn't it? And uh, it's important to know what, what do we, how do we respond as Christians, as individuals. And first of all, I'd say um, in wonder, really, at creation. A wonder and amazement at the design of another human being. Two becoming three. How did that happen? Let's have a look, actually, at how that does happen. I'm going to go through the process. At three weeks fertilized egg single cell starts its journey into the womb a hundred cell embryo on arrival at four weeks it's the size of a poppy seed it's tiny but even then the embryo divides into three layers ready for organs and tissues the heart begins to appear neurotube starts to form the brain and the spinal cord at five weeks it's two and a half millimeters the heart is already dividing into chambers kidneys and liver is growing along with arms and legs At six weeks, the heart is now beating at 150 beats per minute. This can be seen on some ultrasounds. Dark spots for eyes, dimples for ears, opening for nostrils. At seven weeks, it's still only one centimetre. But all internal organs are in major development. Mouth, lips, inner ear, skin, veins are visible. At eight weeks, all organs beginning to function. Eyelids are in place, hands and feet almost perfectly formed. Nine weeks of bending of the fingers, the fingernails are forming, mouth can open, sucking thumb, taste buds in place. At ten weeks, face frowns, mouth swallows, hair grows, the kidney, intestines, brain, lungs fully functioning. Eleven weeks, four centimetres, clear facial expressions, kicking and stretching. At 12 weeks, now the fetus is fully formed. Everything is in place. After just three months, all major work has been done. 
Somehow, instructions have been given to the fetus on how everything fits together and grows. It's just incredible, isn't it? When you hear it like that, knitted together in the mother's womb. I don't know if some of you have friends who run up to you and, and show you the scan at, at 12 weeks, and you look and go, wow, and all you can see really is a smudge on the screen. But it's true. But the actual parents are going, but we can see every single detail of what we've just described. It's all there, perfectly formed, incredible. Let's firstly not lose a sense of the wonder of creation. Secondly, respect. Let's respect all people. We carry, as Grandma said, the image of God. Therefore, treat others how God treats us. Uh, we're all images or made in the image of God. The weak, the vulnerable, the disabled, as Graham said, those with dementia. They don't suddenly become non-persons. We have dignity and status, not because we do anything or achieve anything or become anything. We do because it's who we are and it's how God has created us. Everyone has the ability to enrich our lives. We've got look at our owner, Joel Blaber. Last week, I don't know if you saw, the Prime Minister had the privilege of meeting our very own Joel. You know what? I think that, I said this before, that I think Joel was the catalyst for the massive swing during the week. (laughs) There's no other explanation, is there? Whatever the polls say. At Joel's birth, people prayed over him and said that he would touch many lives um, and, every, and many nations, and he has, even our David Cameron. And also, many of our lives have been touched and enriched by Joel and many others here as well. And we need to treat all people, all individuals, with the greatest of respect. Thirdly, with empathy, we need to respond out of empathy. We have the ability to see the world through other people's eyes. As Graham said, we haven't been born to be individuals living our own little world in our own little universe, although sometimes it seems as if we are going that way. That's not what God created. That's not what he intended. He intended for us to, to live in relationship with one another, to live in community and in family. And um, it's because of that that actually we feel the pain of the people around us. Many, many of us um, here will have experienced uh, pain and heartache of whether it be through uh, miscarriage or whether it be through an inability to have children, whether you have these decisions you're wrestling with about do you go for IVF or not, whether there's disability within the family. Many of us have experienced things like this and it's actually our opportunity as a family and in relationship to actually have empathy and to care. That's what we're here for. That's what we're here for, genuine love and care. Fourthly, we're to respond in protection. Each human life carries God's image. Graham said that each life is special and sacred. In evolution, it says it's the survival of the fittest. In in Christianity, it's the opposite. We turn it on its head and say, actually, it's the weak and the vulnerable that we need to care for. We need to lift people up. We need to protect and ensure that those who are weak and vulnerable within our communities are loved and cared for. Often, the advice today is, don't go through the pregnancy. It's not in your best interest. But the child in the womb bears the image of God. He or she is unique. So our response is firstly to be in wonder of the creation, 
of how God has created us to then respect each individual, to have empathy and to protect because we bear the image of God and we're a reflection of him, himself. Sadly, not all babies are protected. As you know, since 1967 legislation, there's been 7 million uh, pregnancies that have ended within the womb. So how can we as a church now respond? It's the reality. Uh, A single lady, I asked for her permission to share this this morning. Uh, A single lady came to me just only a few months ago and said she'd found out she was pregnant. She was upset. She was frightened. She didn't know what to do. And she said, I just can't go through with it. I can't have this baby. I won't be able to cope financially. I'm not in a relationship. I, I don't know. I just can't do this. And then she also said, and what would people think? And she is meaning the church. She was meaning us. What would, the, she, what would we think, a single woman being pregnant? I felt really challenged by this and provoked. You know, as a church, we should and hopefully are um, people who respond with immense compassion and care, communicating the forgiveness of God and the life of God. We're not people to be standing around with raised eyebrows and and wagging fingers, but we're here to be um, embracing with open arms and, and filled with love and acceptance. As a church, that's who we're here, that's what we're about. People of compassion with open arms to accept and welcome people home. We also need to be very practical. We need to provide practical help, don't we? You know, it's okay saying, no, 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 we love you. Actually, we need to be mums to these new mums. We need to open up our own home. You think, well, they're not quite like us. I don't know whether they quite relate. It doesn't matter. Open up our homes. Welcome people in. Be practical in our care and in our support not just with words, but with actions. Grandparents. Grandparents are great, aren't they? My, gra- my parents swoop in and they, they babysit free of charge. They lavish gifts on my kids. They're wonderful. Not everybody's going to have grandparents. Don't, don't neglect. Don't think I can't really be of any help in this situation. Grandparents are needed in this situation where you can step in and unconditionally love, unconditionally give, unconditionally play with kids and babysit. They may not be your natural grandchildren, but be grandparents to the children that are coming in to our church and our community. Um, And also, it would be great if we were providing real alternatives. I know that many people are looking into fostering children. Um, It's a massive commitment, but something we'd really encourage people to pray about and think about. And also, adoption. Even bigger step that I know that there are people within the church who are gathering together and pray because they're considering adoption. And we commend you and support you in in that as well. Our goal is not to try and make abortion illegal, as Graham said. It's to make it unthinkable. And that can only happen when the alternative is just so much better. So much better and real. Uh, This morning, we're also very much aware that there will be another response uh, within certain people's hearts today. Uh, We're aware that there will be people in the room who feel the heartache and the pain of past decisions, past regrets. You may feel guilty because you've either been involved directly or indirectly with ending a pregnancy. And the more that Graham and I have been talking, the more that you feel the pain. And we want to support you in this as well. I'm going to talk a bit more about that in a moment because there may also be people here uh, who are pregnant 
right now and you're not filled with joy and you are filled with fear and you're not too sure what to do and the decisions to be made. Let's just watch a story of a very good friend of mine. It's um, narrated and acted by um, actors, but it's a true story of someone close to me. I met my boyfriend at 18 in my final year at Sixth Form College. I fell deeply in love with him. I was all set to go to America for a gap year before going to university. We were using contraception, but it failed. So I took the morning after pill, and then I discovered I was pregnant. I was advised to have an abortion because there was the possibility the child might be born with deformities because of the chemicals in the pill. When I told my boyfriend I was pregnant, he said that if I had the baby, he would have nothing to do with me ever again and would not support us. He gave me the money to have the abortion. I made the decision. My friend took me to the clinic in the middle of nowhere and dropped me off. I kept thinking, but I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant. I was very confused and numb. As I took the train home, I cried and knew I had to hide this dark secret from everyone. I had to grieve the loss of our seven-week-old baby silently, bury it deep within and carry on as if nothing had happened. It was the worst day of my life. I had lost our baby, but it was me who had made it happen. And then came the shame, guilt and depression. Years on, my views have drastically changed. I would say please look for any alternative. The emotional fallout and brokenness can be so very difficult to deal with. You are not able to grieve and you are not supposed to have guilt or shame or sadness because it was you who made the decision. But having the abortion has affected every area of my life. It left me disconnected from people. I'd push people away, never trusting anyone. I rejected them before they had the opportunity to reject me, just like I had rejected my baby. But becoming a Christian has changed me. I started to understand that God was the creator of all things, including my baby. God was putting together an amazing life, and I had to accept that I had taken this life away. Becoming a Christian helped me to accept this. It helped me to understand why I felt such sadness and anger. I said sorry to God, and in that moment I was released from the biggest torment of not being able to forgive myself. Jesus, by his enormous grace, had forgiven me. I was free. And now, I am happily married to a man who knows my secrets and I know who loves me. How do I feel when I see other children? I marvel at them. I see God's creation. My heart delights in them and I know that he is looking after my baby and one day I will meet my child. It's uh, really difficult to respond, isn't it, to something like that? clapping, do you, don't you? Um, This isn't theory of something that's happening out there somewhere. This is the reality of what's happening here and now. And um, I watched that DVD many, many times now, hoping that it'd make it easier for me, but it it doesn't. (laughs) You know, it's tough what, what people are going through. But the wonderful thing is, is that there is hope and there is forgiveness, and there is life. And I love watching that video and thinking, I know that this friend is living in the freedom of forgiveness. Uh, Those who are here who feel the pain of ending a a pregnancy will just want you to know this. 
uh, more than anything else this morning, really, that there is a loving, caring, heavenly Father who is for you. Uh, Jesus went out of his way to try and explain this by using the, the story of the prodigal son, where he said, look, this son took everything. Most of us know this story. He said, I want this and my inheritance now. He went off, lived the high life, spent up and then realized this wasn't quite the high life and thought even the servants back in my, my father's place are living better than me. I will, I will go back and I will say sorry and see what happens. This is the response that Jesus wants us to see. This of the father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. Put a robe to cover the shame and a ring on to restore his status. I thought I'd better get through this this morning. <laughs> it's the third time I've read it and still it affects me. I think this is our heavenly father. This is how he sees us. He covers our shame with his robe. He puts a ring on our finger and says, you are my child. There's no raised eyebrows. There's no wagging finger. There's nothing. There's a celebration. And that's how our heavenly father sees each of us, whatever our situation, whatever we've done. And some of you might be thinking, I don't know whether I can overcome this. I don't know whether I can really be forgiven. You know what? There is nothing that is beyond God's grace. There is nothing that that is beyond his forgiveness. His forgiveness is limitless. And there's no freedom like the freedom when we receive his forgiveness. It's incredible. I'm not saying that when we find this freedom that, that, that the memories will go. But he doesn't want, God doesn't want us to go through life punishing ourselves. Society says, you know, there's nothing wrong. It's our right, it's our bodies, there's no guilt. But any of us who've been through this will know that even in the quiet places, even in the secret places where no one knows what's happened, intrinsically we feel the loss And intrinsically, we feel the pain. What Jesus says and what God says is that he wants us to accept that when Jesus died on the cross, he took all our guilt and shame, done and dusted. And he's also said to follow it up with the right choices. Jesus um, went to the woman who was caught in adultery and said, I don't condemn you. Now give up your life of sin. There is no condemnation. Now live the life that I want you to live. Life in all its fullness. Uh, There are also those who may be here who are pregnant, as I said, and that you may be trying to make the right decision. Or you may find you're pregnant in weeks or months to come. We're really not trying to tell you what you must do, what you have to do. This does remain your decision. But what we are doing is opening up a dialogue, a dialogue that really doesn't often happen, and particularly in these situations. Um, And we want this to be a place where people can talk and can be open. Uh, We obviously would urge you to protect your child and keep your child. And you might say, yeah, but you don't know my circumstances. No, but that is something we can help you with. Uh, but you say, well, the humili- humiliation, you don't have to face that. No, I understand, but we can support you through this. 
So I can't face the guilt. What happens if I have to give my child up for adoption? Give them the opportunity to live, to love, to feel accepted, to experience life, to live the life they were designed to live. I'm just going to end with reading just a couple of very brief stories. This is Steve Patton. Steve is a church pastor. He tweeted this on the 22nd of the 1st of this year at 8.48. It says, 12-year-old girl was raped and got pregnant. Everyone would understand if she had an abortion. She didn't. It was a boy. His name, Stephen Patton. Jonathan Natok, really good friends of ours, um, tells us this story. In 1938, Will and Millie remarried. Um, sorry, Will and Millie married. For some reason, Millie was unable to give birth to living babies, had numerous miscarriages and stillbirths. John was born to an underage 15-year-old trainee nurse in Guernsey in 1964. His natural father was a GP who was put up for adoption. Eleven days later, Will and Millie adopted him. They were 51 at the time. Through them, John came to know Jesus at the age of five. He grew up to become like his adopted dad. He was musical, like his adopted dad, spoke both English and French, like his dad. He even went bored early, like his adopted dad. Will and Millie lived well into their 90s and were blessed with grandchildren they never imagined having. And what became of John? Well, he's currently the chief minister of Guernsey, the equivalent of our prime minister. What a great story of someone, a brave woman who is able to uh, surrender her will and actually give her child an opportunity to live. We want to help you keep your baby. If that's not possible for whatever reason, we want you to consider the option that few people mention and that of adoption. At this stage of your life, you might not be able to care for a child or your circumstances might make it impossible for you to be mum at the moment. But there are 2,320 people, couples, desperately wanting to do this on your behalf. It will change their life. I just want us to end now on a DVD. We had years of failed fertility treatments um, and there were some years where on Mothering Sunday I did disappear and either help with the coffee downstairs or sit in the creche because I just, I just couldn't handle um, um, all the focus on being a mum when it was the one thing I longed to be but I didn't want people to think that I was against them being mums and it was all these sort of range of big emotions. Um, but then that, that changed for us. We, we, we got to the end of, of what we felt we could do with the fertility and we really felt, okay, if this was going to work, it would have worked by now. So we, we stopped back and, and we looked at our other options. And, and of course, one of the options is adoption. Um, and, and when we stepped into our local adoption centre, for us, the floodgates opened and, and it felt like family. It felt like, yeah, this is, why wouldn't this be what God has for us that we adopt a child who we haven't got a child and, and they haven't got a family so there could be a match and the process was it was intrusive um, they did ask big questions they needed to know lots about us it you never normally have people sitting in your lounge asking you such in-depth questions about your life who's a complete stranger but but as we went through it we realized more and more if this is going to bring us at the end of this the child that god has for us then we will go through any hoops to find him or her. 
eventually we uh, received information about a child and, and we always prayed and said, Lord, we don't want to go looking for our child. We, we would love you to, to bring them to us. So whoever comes up first, we're, we're going to act as if they're, they're our, our son or daughter. And then probably the best day of our lives was the day we met our daughter for the first time and we'd read loads of stuff about her. But we didn't get to meet her until the week that we were going to, at the end of that, we bring her home. And we felt nervous and excited and it was weird because we were about to adopt a little girl we'd never actually even seen. And um, the foster mum opened the front door and there was our little 14-month-year-old girl just stood in the corridor waiting for us. And the foster mum had done a wonderful job of saying, your mummy and daddy are coming. And so when we arrived... She, she was a stranger, but she treated us like we were the mum and dad we were going to be. And this just taught us how God feels about us. When he adopts us into his family, he will go through any hoops to make us his. We are overwhelmed with love for our little girl. And if you were to ask me, would we do it again differently next time? I think I'd say no. I think I'd say I'd want to adopt. I'd rather have her. And, and go through this route than not have her. I, I hope that you've all heard the heart of compassion that Graham and Belinda have brought today through some really tough words. And, They've just asked if I would just say just shortly a little bit about my story, our story. And when we started trying for a family, um, I had two miscarriages and I know the heartbreak of that. And, the, and a lot of abortion is similar to the heartbreak of that. The second miscarriage was at 22 weeks and I had to give birth to that baby. That baby was dead when it was born. We, did, we fasted and prayed and we went on to have other children. And then we had Joel, our dear Joel down here. Um, I was 29, Joel has Down syndrome. And he also has a genetic disease, a very serious genetic disease called alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, where not many people survive that condition. Um, and uh, we've, we've learned to see the bigger picture. You know, I, you get surrounded by your own emotions and your own situation. But, you know, we've got a very wise God. He knew exactly what he was doing. We had people who said to us, but what about the effect on your other children? Well, I can say here now, as an older woman, I can look back, I can say, it's been for good. God knew what he was doing. He's a wise God. Uh, our eldest son, Tim, is now the pastor of a church, and Tim can get alongside anybody, no matter what their background is. And a lot of that is down to Joel. Our second son, Michael, is a doctor, um, up in Birmingham and he speaks widely now on life and death issues um, and he's quite well renowned now for speaking into this as a Christian and Louise, our daughter, they were blessed with three of their own children but they feel the heart of compassion to adopt and our 10th grandchild is coming in August and that is an adopted child and we can't wait to meet this child you know, God has a purpose so much bigger than what we initially see. So trust him. Whatever you find, the situation you find yourself in, trust him. He is faithful to the end.